morning, guys. Good to see you. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to be in Luke 22. Father, thank you for this time that we have together, uh, just an opportunity for us to gather and to hear your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just invite you, uh, we welcome you, we ask that you would both convict us and encourage us um, to, uh, to see Jesus in a clearer way and to worship him. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever faced a time of darkness and evil, a time when everything seemed to be against you, where you felt the weight of the world on your shoulders? Well, the last night of Jesus is a time like that. It's filled with a prayer request denied, a kiss of betrayal from a close friend, a vow of denial by a best friend, and a false incrimination by the court system that leads to a death sentence. Not only this, but Jesus begins to feel the weight of sin and isolation that is truly behind the scenes during this hour of darkness. In the midst of this hour of darkness, though, Jesus provides us with hope. And with light. So, what does this story mean for you in your hour of greatest darkness? What does it mean for this world in the midst of the darkness that faces it? Well, let's dive in and see. There are four scenes that we're going to talk about um, that make up this passage. So, the first is uh, the garden, submission to the Father's will. The second, the betrayal, a kiss leading to death. The third, the denial, the isolation of abandonment. And fourth, the trial, a miscarriage of justice. So first, the, uh, the garden, submission to the Father's will. Uh, Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And, uh, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's the last night before Jesus is tortured and crucified. He's just shared a meal with his disciples and he has given some instructions about the kingdom and the time is nearing. So Jesus retreats. It says, as according to his custom, he went to the Mount of Olives. It's one of the peaks in a mountain range that was around Jerusalem. And it's filled and pregnant with meaning. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah 14, it's actually prophesied to be the place where God himself would come down and destroy evil and bring in healing and peace. And so Jesus comes uh, into this place for preparation, for communion with the Father. And he leads uh, the disciples to this mountain. They follow along with him. And that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to follow where Jesus leads to listen to what he says. And Jesus instructs them. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this whole passage, it's filled with prayer. I mean, he tells the disciples to pray. Jesus goes and prays, and he comes back and finds them sleeping in the middle of prayer, and he reminds them again, hey, pray again. And he tells them, you need to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what is the temptation that they're liable to enter into? Well, maybe he tells them, pray that you don't fall asleep. 
You know, or it's pray that you don't fall into the temptation of denying me in the middle of this trial that's coming. Into your right talks about that this temptation actually should be more accordingly translated as trial. And he's telling them to pray that they don't fall into the same fate that he's going to fall into. You see, Jesus has been trusted these men. And it says that he won't lose anyone because the Father has given them to him. And so he says, pray that you don't fall into the same fate that I have fallen to. But what we know is that prayer is a means of protection for them in this dark hour. And for us, it tells us that, that prayer um, is what we most deeply need in our hour of darkness. Right? When we're facing times where we feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders, where we feel like the sin and the evil around us is going to swallow us up, this passage invites us to find refuge in prayer. And it says that it both protects us and it guides us, gives us conviction about what God's will is in our life. And so Jesus tells them to pray for themselves, though. It's really interesting that even in this hour of darkness, even as Jesus is beginning to feel this isolation, this weight of sin, he still is thinking of others. He's still concerned about the disciples and has their best in mind. And so he tells them to pray, and it says he goes a stone's throw, which is basically like he goes over yonder, right? He goes just a little bit away, and he starts praying. And this is perhaps the most challenging and most life-giving prayer that we see in the Scripture, though short. It says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we see the humanity of Jesus. We see his honesty, his pain, his longing, his suffering. Is there another way, Father? Is there another way for you to accomplish your plan that doesn't involve my suffering, that doesn't involve my torture, my mockery, my death? Can you remove this cup from me? You see, the cup was an often used symbol of someone's future fate, something that had been appointed to them. Isaiah 51, 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see, the cup that Jesus must drink to the very bottom, that he must swallow with all of its entirety, it's the cup of God's wrath poured out against the evil and the sin of this world. And it's, it's this that is causing him such agony. He knows that though he is sinless, he will be treated as one who has committed unimaginable sin. That though he is innocent, he will be proclaimed guilty. And that though he has had a perfect relationship with his father, it will be ripped from him and he will experience the pain of separation. And though he is blessed and cared for, he will be treated as one utterly forsaken and abandoned. You see, it's this, not just the physical pain of crucifixion or of torture that is causing him such anguish of soul. And it says that the Father sends an angel to his side to comfort him. But he's still, it says that he's still in agony even after this comforter comes and he starts to sweat drops of blood. This is actually a medical term. It's called hematidrosis. And it's where the capillaries actually break and the blood mixes in with a sweat. It causes the skin to become super hypersensitive, almost like the worst of sunburns. And it's, it's in this that, that Jesus comes back and he, he affirms, it's not about me. It's not my will, but it's, it's your will that be done. And what do we see? We see here the faithfulness of Jesus. We see that he is worthy 
of praise and of fulfilling what the Father's called him to. At the beginning of the Bible, you open up the pages and we read about a garden, right? We read about the first man, the first son of God that he created. He put him in a perfect paradise, but there was a temptation, right? Satan comes along and he whispers, God doesn't have your best in mind, that there's a better plan, that you should choose your will over God's will. And we see Adam fail the test. When presented, he says, I know better, my will is better, and I will choose it and reject God's. And because of his rejection of the Father's will, of his Creator's will, he brought in sin. He brought in a curse that has ravaged humanity like cancer, that it leads us to hatred and selfishness and envy and greed and pride. And then we have Jesus come on the scene now, the true Son of Man, the true Son of God, come into another garden where the first one failed. And he steps up and he says, Father, you know my will, but I trust you. I choose your will over my own. Not, don't, don't let my will be done in this. Let your will be done. You see, Jesus is coming and he's reversing the curse. He is taking all that Adam failed to do and he is succeeding in it. He is coming and he is breaking the hold that sin has both in our lives, if you receive him, and also in this world. He is the hero that we all desperately need, the Savior that has come to rescue us. You see, and by his choosing of the Father's will, he's declaring two things. He's saying, God, not only are you sovereign, right? Jesus doesn't see these scenes of events as just a random uh, happenstance, right? This isn't just something that was thrust upon him. He says, God, I realize that this hour of darkness, that you're sovereign over it. But I don't just realize that you're sovereign over it. I realize that you're good in the midst of it. You're good in the middle of it. When everything in this world seems to point against it, when everybody abandons Jesus, everything seems to say that he, God doesn't love him, Jesus says, I trust and I will hold fast to these two things, your sovereignty and your goodness towards me. So what does this mean for you in your hour of greatest darkness, in your hour of suffering? I think it means a couple things. First, I think that it means that it's okay to be honest about where you are with God and about where you are in life. You see, healing comes first through transparency. We can't be healed and we can't move on unless we're first honest. And you see Jesus being honest about what's going on in his own will and his own longings, his own desires. And so when you face, whether it's now or in the future, when you face your hour of darkness, you need to be honest with God. You need to come to him. The second thing I think that this tells us is, it says, don't be surprised when suffering comes into your life because God's will involves suffering, right? At one point or another, God's will in your life will involve suffering. It's, it's not a sign that you're not loved by God, that he doesn't care for you. Jesus suffered. Peter suffered. The disciples suffered. Paul suffered, right? I mean, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes them, he says, God has given me this thorn in the flesh, and he goes, it, it, it gnaws at me. I hate it. I wish that God would just take it away. It, it, I feel like it hinders me from ministry. It hinders all of these things I want to do in my life. He says, and three times I came before the Lord. And I told him, God, you know, please just take this away. And God says, my, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, it's made perfect in weakness. And so don't be surprised when suffering and when pain and when dark hours come into your life. God's grace is sufficient for you. 
His power will be made perfect in your weakness. The next thing I think it means is, it means that because Jesus was forsaken, because he faced the isolation, separation from his father, it means that you will never have to. That if you place your faith in Jesus, when you go through your darkest hour, you will not be alone. You will have a God who knows you and loves you and has experienced what you've experienced walking alongside of you, being present with you. And it also means that sometimes our darkest moments, our darkest hours, are sometimes the, the means that God uses to accomplish the greatest good. And we see Jesus, right? This doesn't look like an hour of great good. You know, you're sweating drops of blood. Your disciples are about to abandon you. The Father's turning his back. I mean, if anything, this is the hour of greatest agony, the greatest depression in your life. But yet, God used it to bring the greatest salvation and light. And for me personally, this has played a huge role in my life. I remember when my mom got cancer, I had a best friend die. And looking, and God, are you mad at me? Do you hate me? Have I not done enough right things? And coming back and realizing that God is good. And that he can use even these for his work and for his plan and for his purpose. And that we don't see it. We never see it in the moment. But in hindsight, when we see him face to face, things will begin to make sense. And it provides hope. And the last thing as we continue to move on is it means that Jesus is faithful. And that he is worthy. And that in our darkest hour, we hold fast to him. Right? We're... We don't have the strength in ourselves, but Jesus does. And what we see throughout this passage is how separated he is from us, how holy he is, unique he is, and that we find our strength not in ourselves, but through him and through holding fast to him in our darkest hours. And so we've seen the garden submitting to the Father's will. The second passage we look at is the betrayal, a kiss leading to death. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12 was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Have you ever been betrayed? Had someone that you cared about, that you invested in, that you loved so deeply exchange that relationship for something or someone else? experience the pain of broken trust. Judas was one of the 12. You see, Jesus had spent three years with this group of men. He had prayed over them before he selected them. He had labored and invested his time and his energy and his life into these men. I mean, being a disciple, it wasn't like an occasional thing. Well, you know, I see him once a week when we meet for breakfast. I mean, Jesus is traveling with them. He's living with them. He's sleeping amongst them. He's eating with them. He's playing with them. He's working with them. They were his entire world. They, they saw everything that he did. They were with him. And yet someone that could be so close chose to exchange their relationship, one that they had pledged to commit themselves wholeheartedly to for 30 pieces of silver. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Can you imagine what Jesus must be feeling knowing that this person 
that he's invested in so much has now betrayed him unto death and comes and does it through a kiss, right, of all the ironies. You know, a kiss, a sign of welcome, of love, and of care. And Jesus doesn't, the irony is not lost. He says, Judas, you would, you would betray me in this manner? You would come and you would kiss me? Can you think about what that would feel like, the anger, the sadness, the disappointment, or maybe even just the pit in your stomach when you felt that other betrayal now, the disciples, they finally catch on, right? They see Judas, they see the crowd, light bulb pops on. Uh-oh, something's going on here. Maybe this isn't exactly a good scenario. And a couple of them say, hey, what, what, what should we do? We'll grab a sword. You know, probably Peter leading the charge, brilliant. Uh, and so he grabs a sword and cuts off, you know, in, in attack mode, cuts off a servant of the high priest's ear. You know, and it's in this moment that... that they seem, you know, Peter is probably turning saying, right? Like, I did the right thing. I mean, he, they're angry. They feel betrayed. And so they, they turn to rage to change things, right? We're not going to let this happen. We're not going to let Jesus be taken. We're not going to let this unjust court system, hap, you know, t- take this route. Like, we refuse. We're going to fight back. We're going to change things through violence. And so he's looking, for, looking at Jesus for approval. And Jesus says, stop. None of this. In Matthew, he says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He's telling him, Peter, this isn't the life I've called you to. This isn't the Father's will, and this isn't your time to perish. In the midst of his betrayal, peace emanates from Jesus. It emanates and it spreads to his disciples, and it calms their anger and their rage. Jesus, he shows what it means to love his enemies. He says in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He shows where change comes from and how to bring it about. Now, the mob turns to him and and they've come out and he says, you've come out to me in the middle of the night? I mean, I've been... In the open daylight with you for days on end, and you had all the chance in the world to arrest me, but you come out acting as if I'm going to flee, like I'm some robber who's stolen something tonight, going to take off. He says, but this is your hour. This is the hour of darkness because you're servants of darkness, and you're here executing something that's far beyond you, but there are powers of darkness that work behind the scenes that are working for my destruction. You see, Jesus knows the powers that are work, but he also knows that his father is ultimately in control and that his plan is even greater than what the plans of darkness are. Now, this scene, it, it shows us the nature of Jesus. All right, when all the chips are down, when everything seems stacked against Jesus, he refuses to give in to self-righteous anger. He won't let his vision be dimmed by the rage of betrayal. In the middle of darkness, Jesus sees while everyone else is blind. You see, he's still on his mission, restoring the broken and the hurting, even if those that are broken and hurting are the ones that have come to kill him. Now, how does this help us in our hour of darkness? It reminds us that Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it means to be betrayed. Sometimes the greatest comfort in times of sorrow and suffering and betrayal are just knowing that there's someone else that knows. There's someone else that has experienced what you've experienced. It also shows us what Jesus is able to do. You see, Jesus can speak in the midst of your hour of darkness, and he can calm your anger. He can calm your rage. In the midst of 
feeling like your soul is ripped in two because of this deep pain you felt, Jesus can come, and as he healed a man's ear, he can begin to mend your soul and heal your heart. And Jesus also, he can help you to accept the Father's will. You see, Jesus could have easily fought against the guards, right? I mean, unjustly, they came to arrest him in the middle of the night. I mean, he could have easily, you know, resisted and found another way, but instead he submits because he trusts the Father's will is working through the situation. And we don't always like, we don't always like how God works and what his will is. But in this scene, it shows us that Jesus can help to find peace and trust and accepting it and following it. The third point in scene is the denial, the isolation of abandonment. Verse 54, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he, sat down, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. I want you to imagine the scene with me through Peter's eyes. It's a cool April night. You've just shared a meal with your master who you've dedicated yourself, your loved one who you followed. You've gone out, you've prayed, you've perhaps fallen asleep in the middle of your prayer, trying to redeem yourself, waking up again and praying some more. And all of a sudden a crowd comes out and they take the one that you've dedicated your entire life to, you've promised yourself to wholeheartedly with everything that you have and they've taken him away. You've gotten violent and anger and rage and you've struck one of the authorities and you've cut off an ear, right? Which is a crime, but they've taken Jesus away. They've taken the one you love away. And all the other disciples begin to scatter except for John. And, and you follow along. So you follow along trailing the authorities at you know, a safe distance because you don't want to get caught also. And as you're trailing in, you go into the court and you realize that they are leading Jesus to the place of their greatest jurisdiction. Right? Th- this is the place where everybody is. And so you enter in. And as you enter in, you begin to realize this isn't exactly a safe place for me. I just committed a crime by attacking an authority. He's probably here amongst the crowd. And this is where I'm at right now. And all of a sudden, self-preservation starts to kick in. You start to realize this isn't the place where freedom comes. This is the place where condemnation comes. It doesn't look good for Jesus anymore. It doesn't look like he's escaping this one. It looks like he's probably going to be sentenced to death. And you're here. One of his followers... Are you going to share the same fate? And so self-preservation starts to kick into Peter. And apparently he stuck out like a sore thumb. Now, I don't know if it was like, you know, the Galilean garb was just a very different thing and they all knew. I mean, I imagine maybe it's something like somebody from coming from like, you know, Alabama or Georgia going straight into the heart of New York. Maybe their accent really sticks out. And everybody's like, wait a second, you're not from here, you know? And they just know there's something different. But there's, it starts with a servant girl. 
right? She looks at him, you know, kind of gets this eye like, wait a second, I, I know you. And she asks him, you've been with Jesus. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know Jesus. And his first denial is that he even knows Jesus. And then another person comes and says, no, you were, you were with him. He goes, I don't even know who you're talking about, right? He goes, I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't with any of the disciples. And so it goes from just denying that he has a relationship with Jesus to denying that he has a relationship with the community of Jesus, that he even knows any of the other disciples. And then finally, a third person confronts him and says, no, you really are one of them. He says, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what is this Jesus movement that you're even mentioning? I'm like completely ignorant. And you see how his lie continues to grow and grow and grow. And it's at this moment that the rooster crows and that Jesus turns and looks at him. And Peter simultaneously realizes two truths. He realizes first that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Jesus is the Son of God, that he had prophesied that this would happen. And Peter knew it, but he had forgot. He had forgotten who Jesus was. And he's immediately reminded at this moment that though he prophesied and though I promised, I swore with everything that I will not abandon you, I will not deny you, he realized that Jesus could see in the future that he knew. Now, that's a good realization. We should have that realization. The second realization is what caused him great agony is that he realized at that same moment that he had turned his back on everything that he had committed his life to. He realized that he had become a hypocrite, that he was wearing a mask of lies to protect himself. And it was these two realizations that led Peter to, to mourn. It says that he, he wept bitterly. And that's a, a good thing when you're confronted with your sin. When you have a genuine confrontation with your own brokenness, your own failures, weeping bitterly is not a bad reaction. But you see, he didn't stay there. Jesus told him in the early past, he says, Peter, I prayed for you that when you return, you're, strength, you're going to strengthen your brothers because he, this, I think, might be actually the most important moment in Peter's entire life. It might have been the very turning point for him because it, it made him a deeper follower of Jesus because he realized my trust isn't in my own goodness. I can't trust in my faithfulness because it, obviously, as I see, it's, it's not perfect and I fail but he realized that what he trusted in was the grace of God towards him. Jesus said, I see this, and your sin isn't bigger than my grace. You can't outfail my plan for you, Peter. Come back. Turn. And this is, this is what I think separates Peter from Judas, right? We have these two stories parallel for each other, right? Judas betray, you know, betrays Jesus, but yet he goes and, and he hangs himself, and Peter denies Jesus three times, but yet he returns. What the, what's the difference? In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a difference in grief. There is a difference in how they process their sin. You see, whereas Judas mourned and was sorrowful for his sin, but ran away from Jesus, he ran away from God. Peter felt the weight of his sin, but instead of running away, he ran too. He came back. He said, here's all my sin and all my brokenness. I know that you've seen the worst of me, and you're not going anywhere, and I'm going to come back to you, because where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And that's what marks the difference. That is what will bring healing in your hour of deepest need and deepest brokenness, whether it's brought on by your own sin or the sin of others, is it's coming back to Jesus in the midst of it rather than running away from him. The last point, the trial, a miscarriage of justice. Verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. Jesus is arrested. But as he's being taken to his trial, those in authority abuse him. They mock him, right? They blindfold him and they ask him to prophesy who beat you, Jesus. They belittle him and they dehumanize him. They treat him as an object of torture and ridicule for their own personal amusement. Our Savior, he knows exactly what it's like to be the object of misused power by those in authority. See, once they're done with their fun, Jesus is taken before the assembly of rulers. And there's likely a a trial that happens in the middle of the night. And so this morning trial was a total kangaroo trial. It's a farce. They're simply looking for a way to incriminate and to sentence him. And so they... They say, tell us, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? While he's been teaching for three years, it's very evident by all of his teachings. And he says, you don't want to know the truth. Have you ever been in that situation where somebody's just trying to goat you into an answer? They don't really want to listen to you. They don't really want to engage you as a person. But instead, they just want to debate you and be on top. They want to win. It doesn't matter what it costs them. And that's exactly where they're at. We don't care, Jesus. We want to win, and we will win. And so they coax an answer to try to frame him to try to get a a, a false incrimination and so jesus says i am i am the son of god you'll see me see at the right hand of the power of god and so the deal is done he's sentenced to death for proclaiming the truth now we're reminded in these four scenes that we've just talked about we're reminded why jesus died what is it that put jesus on the cross why did he have to go I'm reminded that he went to the cross to restore what is broken. That he is the son of God come again to the garden to succeed where we have failed. That he came to fulfill the father's will that all of us have fallen short of. That he came to die for sin. For the selfishness that leads us to deny and betray the God who created us and loves us. The envy and pride that leads authorities to abuse and misuse their power. The self-righteous anger that wants to choose violence instead of peace to change things. He comes to take the punishment upon himself that through faith and repentance we might receive his grace towards us. What does this mean for you in your hour of greatest darkness and need? It means hope. It means comfort. It means that there is hope that, that evil will end, that change can happen. You see, the death of Christ for our sin, it is a deep anchor of hope that holds us in the deep night of suffering and evil. It promises us that our hour of darkness, it's not the final chapter. 
that there is healing on the other side. Our hope, both in life and death, is this, that we are not our own, but we belong to God, and that he is a good God, that he is sovereign, and that he is faithful. I want to end our time just by reading this song. Most of us know it well, but it is called It Is Well With My Soul. The author is Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer and businessman uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, His son, in 1871, died of pneumonia. And the same year that his son died of pneumonia, his entire business was burnt up by the Chicago fires of uh, 1871. And then, as if that's not bad enough, two years later, in in, uh, 1873, all of his family, his four daughters and his wife, were traveling across the ocean. And they came into a a collision with another ship, and their ship went down. And his wife was the only survivor. All four of his daughters passed in the travel. And it's as he is traveling back across the ocean where his almost entire family has passed that he writes this song. And listen to it. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole. It is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord of my soul. For me be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine, for as in death as in life thou shalt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed, look, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so... It is well with my soul. In the hour of our greatest darkness, we can find hope and we can find comfort in Christ. And so my prayer for you, that whether it's facing you now or whether it will face you in the future, that you will turn and you will find your rest, your joy, your hope, your comfort in Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you that we get to see that you are holy and separate, that you are strong, God, and that you are worthy of us placing our faith and our hope and our trust in you. And so I pray, Lord, for those that maybe are going through an hour of darkness, of despair, of depression, of betrayal, or whether it's something that they will face in the future, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will draw them back into into your life and into this, this passage specifically and remind them of the hope that is found in you. So here we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Trevor. Jesus knows darkness. Jesus knows betrayal. He knows isolation. He knows injustice. I don't know what you're facing this morning. And if not this morning, um, if you're not facing darkness this morning, at some point you will be facing some dark times. I don't wish that upon you, but it's just reality. So when we're facing dark times, how do we walk through those? Will we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, who knows 
what our experience is. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We, we were there with him in the garden here this morning. And, and here's what he prayed in the garden that becomes this beautiful model for us. Not my will, but your will be done. And do you know that prayer is one of the most faith-filled prayers that we can actually utter? It's not this surrender to just this impersonal fate. He's speaking to his heavenly Father. Not my will, but your will be done. And when we come to that place of rest in the midst of darkness and trial of any kind, and we can say, not my will, but yours be done, we're holding on to what we know is true of God. He's faithful through and through. This story's going somewhere. Next week, we're looking at crucifixion and where this leads. Jesus knows where it's going. He's holding on to what he knows is true, and we're going to do the same as we face dark times together and even individually. So I'm thankful. Trevor, thank you for serving us this morning and putting this before us the way you have. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray. I pray that as we face trials, whatever they might be, that we would be able to, like Jesus, say, not my will, but your will be done. And to know that in the midst of darkness, whatever it is, that you're good that you know what we're facing, that we're not alone, but you go before us in might and power and that we would hold on to what we know is true of you. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And I pray, Father, right now for those who are experiencing dark times right now, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a family member, the loss of a family member, uh, whether it's uh, just a trial, a heaviness, a depression, feeling the isolation that so much of our culture is experiencing. Maybe it's job loss. Maybe it's misunderstanding. Maybe it's an injustice done to them. Lord, thank you that we can face these things knowing, Jesus, that you know everything about that, Lord. And we thank you that we're not alone. So comfort them with that, we pray. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us via live stream. Thank you for gathering in person Uh, This morning, we are doing Start Here with Local. Again, 10 minutes right here if you want to stick around uh, and get to know Local Church, the mission and vision. That'll be down here. Also, if you need any prayer, we're not not moving out of here quickly. We're going to be here, and if you'd like to pray, uh, we'd love to have you uh, come and do that. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you uh, next week.